How are the leaders at all levels of management tackling the toughest challenges each day? That's the question. And this podcast is the answer. I'm Rob Fonte, and I'm bringing on the brightest minds in management to share practical solutions to those challenges you're facing. Let's get ready to jam. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Leadership Jam Session. In light of the devastating events taking place in Europe with the war between Ukraine and Russia, I decided to bring back a previous guest of mine, retired Major General Craig Weldon, to share his perspective and insights on the current events taking place. And I know there's been a lot of news coverage on this topic with a lot of various talking heads, but I thought, why not sit down with someone who's lived in Germany for 10 years, served as the base commander in Germany, and was there when the Berlin Wall fell. And just to refresh everyone's memory, General Weldon served in the military for 30 years, retiring as a two-star general. And he was on my podcast a few years ago, which was episode 13, to talk about his award-winning best-selling book called Leadership, The Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best. And since then, General Weldon became the president of a startup company called Volantra, a new company focused on military and commercial applications of supersonic and hypersonic UAV technology. General Weldon, it is a privilege and an honor to have you back on the Jam Session. Welcome back. Thanks, Rob. Happy to be here with you. I thought it'd be great to get you back just so we can talk about all the events that are taking place in Europe with the war between Ukraine and Russia. And with your distinguished military career as a two-star general, and you spent a lot of time in Europe. 10 years in Europe, captain, major, and lieutenant colonel and colonel. So my formative years were really spread over about a 20-year period, but I was in Germany for 10 years. And a portion of that, I was in a cavalry unit that guarded the Czechoslovakian border. So let me ask you, were you surprised by Russia's invasion? No, not completely. What surprised me was two things, really. The strength of the will of the Ukrainian people Mm -hmm. and their capabilities to defend their country. Having just watched what happened in Afghanistan, when the Afghan army just melted under the grilling of the Taliban, I didn't really know what to expect from Ukraine, but they demonstrated that they're not going to put up with this. This is a David and Goliath kind of an event, obviously. The other thing that surprised me a little bit, but not completely, was the complete ineptitude of the Russian military. And I say not completely because I understood that they were not 10 feet tall when I was facing them many years ago in the Cold War, when we had the Berlin Wall and all that sort of thing, because that's what I was in Europe for, for those 10-year period during the Cold War, late 70s, mid 80s. And then after the wall fell down, I was there in the 90s when we were engaging and encouraging Eastern European countries to join NATO, Mm -hmm. which in fact, many of them did. I actually took the first military-to-military exchange into Hungary in 1992, and it was a fascinating experience because they were desperate to join NATO, having just been part of the Eastern Bloc. And their equipment was old, but they were energized and anxious to convince us that they were worthy of membership. And of course, Hungary, a couple of years later, did become part of NATO, and we went from 14 countries to 30 countries in a matter of a number of years. Hmm. I also understand the psyche of the Russians and the Russian government having watched NATO expand after the Berlin Wall fell. And we now have a leader there named Vladimir Putin, who is uh, in Dresden, Germany, East Germany, 
uh, when the Berlin Wall fell as a KGB agent. And so he had that mentality that that's those are his roots uh, mm-hmm. as a spy in Eastern Germany during the Cold War. And he watched the dissolution of the Soviet Union and Russia shrink into its former self. And I believe that he has always had this desire to expand back to what was once the grander, greater Soviet Union and create those kinds of buffers between Russia and Western Europe that Eastern Europe provided. And as NATO expanded and got closer and closer and closer, he saw those buffers starting to disappear. And when Ukraine started making noise about wanting to be part of not just the European Union, but NATO, I can see why he, in his paranoid way, would see that as a threat. In that respect, I wasn't surprised because, you know, what has he got between him and the West? He's got Belarus, uh, which is sort of on his side. He's got Ukraine, which is not on his side. He's got the Baltic countries, which are part of NATO. He's got uh, 800 mile border with Finland, who mm-hmm. was neutral until he invaded Ukraine and now is making noise about wanting to be part of NATO along with Sweden. So the, the exact opposite effect has occurred. He's sort of like the bully on the on the playground who decides to go out there and take everybody's toys away from them and say, I'm the biggest guy on the block. Nobody can mess with me. And then somebody does. But it's absolutely amazing the will power of the Ukrainian people and what you can do when you're determined to do it. They are, and his army and military is not, obviously. You know, it was surprising to hear you say that because you always hear about Russia and how powerful they are with their army. And, and it's interesting to hear you say that how they performed thus far in, in many respects didn't surprise you. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, it didn't surprise me that they weren't as good as many people thought they were. Yeah, It did surprise me that they were much worse than <laughs> I expected them to be. I mean, they violated so many principles of war and, and, and were so inept in even basic things like logistics, supply in their army in very short distances, quite frankly, comparatively speaking. If when you think about coming out of Belarus to Kiev and uh, supplying your military between there, and they just ran out of gas, they ran out of food, they ran out of ammunition, they drove down roads, they got stuck because the Ukrainians would take out the front tank and the back tank and nobody else could go anywhere. Because if they got off the roads, they'd go into the mud or in the water and so forth. I mean, they didn't think through how do I create the conditions for success for my military? They didn't combine their capabilities into one big fist. They used like one finger at a time. You know, so where was the air power? Think back of Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and how we invaded Kuwait, mm-hmm. uh, to get Iraq out. We spent 30 days of an air campaign without moving any ground forces into Kuwait. Yeah. 30 days until we were comfortable that we owned the air, that we had completely suppressed their air defense. We had taken down their air force and we had softened up, to use a metaphorical term, their ground forces. And now the conditions were ripe for a ground attack. That's right. Which then was over in four days. Right. I forgot about that. Yeah. I forgot that the air campaign was. Where was the air campaign for Russia when they went into it? It was almost non-existent. What do you think it is? Is it is it more of lack of skill on the Russian side, lack of leadership skill, or is it that Ukrainians are 
are better than people thought they were? It's a little bit of both. I think the the Russian model, and for the most part, most of the Eastern European countries were like that when they were part of the Russia Soviet Union. The Russian model is a very top-down model. They've got lots of senior officers. Let me give you a simple example. Mm-hmm. I went into, I think I mentioned already, and maybe it was a pre-talk, I went into Hungary to lead the first military to military exchange. I was a lieutenant colonel and the folks on my team were majors and captains and sergeants. I had about eight people, I think, that went in. They treated us like we were all generals. They treated us like VIPs. They clearly did. We had an exchange trip a few months later where the Hungarians came over to Germany and visited us. And we took them to a firepower demonstration. We showed them our equipment. We let them talk to our soldiers and so forth. When I was in Hungary, this is shortly after the Berlin Wall fell, they would not let me talk to enlisted soldiers. I could only talk to officers. No enlisted soldiers, no sergeants briefed any of us. Mm -hmm. They were all lieutenant colonels and colonels. When they came over to our side, we turned them over to our non-commissioned officers. Why? because that's where the rubber meets the road. They're the backbone of the military. We trust our non-commissioned officers to lead our soldiers. The Russians don't. They have senior people telling an organization, your mission is to go from point A to point B to attack that hill. And that's the only thing they tell them, and I'm oversimplifying it to make a point, but that's the only thing they tell them. And then when it starts to go awry and it starts to fail, they don't know what to do because they were just told to go from point A to point B. There's no, there's no innovation. There's no creativity. There's no powering down of authority. None of that exists in that model of military. And it didn't exist. And so we had spent the last 20, 30 years since the Berlin Wall fell down training Eastern European in Western military tactics, techniques, procedures, strategy, operational art, and tactics. And that's why the Ukrainians kind of look like we might look if we were there. Mm. Add the fact that they're defending their homeland and their families, and they're incentivized to do what they're doing in ways that the Russian soldiers are not, who were not even told when they came into Ukraine that they were attacking Ukraine. Right. They were just out for a, a training exercise, they thought. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there. Who, who are not familiar with the military that actually think any military is that model, the very top-down driven that you described from the Russian side. But that is not the case, in particularly with, with our military in the U.S. Or, or other militaries. Many of the Western countries are, are like us. I mean, the Brits are like us, the French are mm-hmm. like us, the Australians are like us, the Japanese are like us. I think I mentioned Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent ten. I spent a dozen years in the Pacific as well, so I'm familiar with some of the militaries over there. But but the Russians, the Chinese, most likely the North Koreans. I'm guessing Iranians, although they're a little bit different than in terms of the way they operate. But certainly the Russian model, and I believe the Chinese model is is like that. It's very. Mm-hmm. This is the way it is. This is the only way it is. Right. Don't you dare try to create anything new, different innovative. Just do what I tell you to do. And that's it. And that stifles any, you know, who was it? The famous boxer, Mike Tyson says, you know, uh, your plan works until you get punched or something like that. But I do believe what he said is true, that every 
every plan works great until you get punched. And it's sort of the same way in the military, you know, every plan works until it doesn't. And few plans, you know, experience success all the way to the end, be able to be adaptive. I know you talk a little bit about this in your book too, but you see it in the private sector as well. That's also the difference between successful companies and ones that aren't, right? The ones that have that very top-down driven, you know, it's it's my way, the highway, intimidate by fear, kills the culture, kills innovation, while others take a whole different approach, right? There's a lot of correlations there. Exactly. Who who knows best how a widget operates than the person who's working with a widget every single Mm -hmm. day? And so a successful CEO will go down and walk the floor and talk to his employees and say, is there a better way to do this? How should we do it? What's your experience? You know, leadership by walking around. And the same principle applies in the military too. If you stay in the headquarters, you don't get out and about, talk to the troops, see what they think, see, you know, learn from them. Ultimately, you're going to fail. And that's what what we're seeing with the Ukrainians. Yeah. The way they're approaching it. Is that fair? I think the Ukrainians are allowing people to make decisions that they need to make on site, but they're motivated. Yeah. There's no substitute for the kind of motivation that you'll feel when you're defending your country and your family. Now, I say in the wake of the Afghanistan thing, but that, you know, I think there's probably two different arguments there. The Taliban has been in Afghanistan for decades. It's not like Pakistan invaded Afghanistan and they're defending against Pakistan. So it's a little different model. Mm. A foreign country, imagine Canada or Mexico invaded Texas or North Dakota, how the locals would respond to that. Let me ask you this, General. So looking at Zelensky and looking at Putin, does their leadership style impact what's happening with the soldiers in the trenches? Does it have an impact? I I think absolutely it does. Let me tell a quick story. And I may have told you on this on one of our earlier talks. I worked for a three-star general one time. He was was an introvert, but he was a consummate gentleman, uh, never raised his voice in anger. And I had a colonel come up to me one time. I I was the deputy I had a colonel come up to me one time and say, you know, General so-and-so is the toughest guy I have ever worked for. And I said, really? (laughs) Why is that? And he said, because I never wanted to disappoint him. You know, if that colonel woke up and went to work and felt like he had disappointed that general, it would have been the worst feeling he ever had. And I think most of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military feel that way about Zelensky. When Zelensky was offered by the West to leave Ukraine at the beginning of the war, he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And he hasn't left yet. And that's powerful. That's powerful when your leader is there and say, I'm with you. Now, on the other hand, you don't have, in my opinion, you don't have a leader in Vladimir Putin. You have a dictator who people are afraid to bring the truth to Mm -hmm. because they know that uh, the reaction that they'll get from him. And that's part of the reason I think they failed because nobody was willing to tell him how poorly they might do uh, if they did what he told them to do, which was invade Ukraine. And so I'm sure Putin was surprised by the results and hence the change in, you know, the objective, no longer the entire country. It's the eastern Donbass regions. So uh, and we'll see how that plays out. Zelensky certainly has has captivated the world for sure, with common sense, basic leadership principles too, 
it certainly seems like it's going a long way within his yeah. country for sure. So yeah. let me ask you, do you think either we or, or NATO, do you think we're doing everything we should be doing or should we be doing more? That's a tough question because I'm not aware of everything that we are doing mm -hmm. uh, because I'm sitting on the sideline just watching it on the news. So let me make some guesses. We are providing a tremendous amount of capabilities, but we're not providing enough. Mm -hmm. Why do I say that? I listen to Zelensky continually, repeatedly say he needs more. And the other day I read a report where he said, you know, I feel like it's Groundhog Day and I'm Bill Murray because a week ago I got asked the same question. What do you need? Mm -hmm. And he told them what they needed. He was talking about Western countries and Western leaders. And he still needs the same, except he needs more. You know, why, are, why do you continue asking me the same question when I already told you I need more of the same? He has put his wish list out repeatedly and early. Now, we are providing capabilities to him, which have been very successful, but they're in a different fight in eastern Ukraine than they were in the north and in the south. It's a completely different environment. And now I think the Russians have learned that they need to mass their forces, shorten their logistical lines. They've learned from their mistakes of the way they took this on in the first place. So it's going to be tougher for the Ukrainians, and they need different tools in their kit bag. And I believe that we're starting to provide those. Right. So there's a couple of issues here. One is we don't have the time to put the war on pause so that we can bring the Ukrainians out of Ukraine and train them on Western equipment. What they know, what they understand, for the most part, is Soviet-era equipment. So the question is, where is that? And there's a lot of it in Eastern Europe. So you have to convince the Eastern Europeans to give that up, but they don't want to give up their own stuff if they are then unprotected. So then we have to make the commitment to backfill that. Classic example is an air defense system that I believe the Czechs are giving up. It's a high-altitude system, but they would be exposed if they gave it up. So we have agreed to backfill that with a Patriot missile system. They're part of NATO. We can put a Patriot system in there. We can put Army soldiers, U.S. Army soldiers in there to operate it, to protect NATO, to protect the Czech Republic. So hopefully there's more of that going on. And we are encouraging those who have Soviet era equipment with which the Ukrainians are familiar, enough incentive for them to give that over and I would encourage them to do it in a little less public way than we appear to be. It doesn't help for us to tell the Russians that we're giving Ukraine 155 millimeter howitzers, which everybody knows has a range of about 30 kilometers. And so the Russians say, okay, as soon as we find them, we'll just get 35 kilometers away. We'll be outside their range. You know, we ought to be giving them capabilities without broadcasting what yeah. we're giving to them so that uh, the Russians are surprised when it's time to encounter them. Now, I hope there's a lot of that going on as well. And I know that some Eastern European countries are, in fact, doing exactly that because they don't want to poke the bear in the eye any more than they need to. Mm. But they also want to help, help their Ukrainian brothers. So there's a lot of behind the scenes, secret level of support going on. But I think we're about to enter a whole new phase with this fight in the eastern Ukraine. It's a different kind of fight. Uh, the Russians have learned from their mistakes of the past, one would think. Mm. We have to provide now different kinds 
of capabilities to the Ukrainians and more of it, Mm -hmm. and hopefully less publicly. I'm glad you said that because I was somewhat surprised with the amount of details that they were sharing. I mean, even going back to the MiG planes that that Poland wanted to, to give and I would have thought that would have just been done behind the scenes and nobody would have known anything. Well, hopefully it is being done behind the scenes. Yeah, right. We don't know about it. So we'll yeah. see. So let me ask you, where do you think this goes? Do you think Ukraine can win? I do think Ukraine can win. Now, what, let's define win. What does win mean? Yeah. Russia is in possession of a chunk of eastern and southern Ukraine mm-hmm. and have been for since 2014 with the Crimea that they took in 2014 and the Donbass region that they had insurgents working for the last eight years. So what does win mean? Does it mean status quo like North Korea, South Korea after the Korean War? Does it mean that the Russians get kicked out of Crimea and Donbass? I don't know. It kind of begs the question, Ukraine, what does success to you mean? They've got an absolutely devastated infrastructure right now, and I'm sure more to come. So what they get back is land, but you know, the infrastructure that supported that land needs to be rebuilt. I would hope that all the hundreds of billions of dollars of money that is being tied up isn't ultimately returned, but is used to rebuild Ukraine. And now who makes that happen? I don't know. But the world ought not to let Russia get off scot-free, even if they decided tomorrow to stop the war and say, okay, we're done, but we're going to pull back in. No, the the economic constraints should remain and uh, we should use to the maximum extent possible the economic gains of the Soviet Union that we currently have control of to help, you know, put Ukraine back on its feet. Will anybody go before the international criminal courts? I don't know. Yeah. Probably not. Certainly not at the top level unless they leave. But that's not unprecedented. Milosevic coming out of Bosnia-Herzegovina and others in Northern Africa have, have been hauled before Hague, the Hague in the past. So who knows where it will go. But yeah, I think uh, Ukraine certainly can hold their own, retain the status quo. And if we are supportive enough, they could take their, their land back yeah. and make Ukraine whole again. The question will be, where is Putin's red line in terms of what he finds accessible in a loss. And I don't know where that is. It seems that's kind of like a million dollar question, right? Because a lot of, it seems like the the concern is how much do you poke the bear and what will the response be? Just yesterday, he launched an ICBM. And that was clearly a signal to tell us, the United States and the rest of the world, but principally the United States. Remember, I've got intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear weapons on them uh, at my disposal. Just like any bully on the playground trying to uh, intimidate us into backing off or not, you know, continuing to do what we've been doing to date and certainly not increasing it. So seems like the Ukrainians um, certainly don't mind standing up to the bully. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. Just just one more question here, just to shift gears for a second. You know, there's also been a lot of talk about China. Sure. Right. And a lot of speculation around that China may invade Taiwan. What's your thought on that? Do you think that is a possibility? Does the current situation in Ukraine and and Russia, has that maybe changed some of that? Love to get your thoughts on it. So that's a great question. 20 years ago, I was the chief of staff of a Navy Joint Task Force whose focus was China. And so I spent a lot of time in uniform 
and again, this is 20 years ago, mm -hmm. watching China. Fast forward a few years, I was an executive director for Marine Corps Forces Pacific in Hawaii with a job of building a base in Guam for Marines that were going to move from Japan in the next couple of years. And it took me eight years to get the environmental studies done for the base in Guam for 5,000 Marines. During those eight years, from about 2010 to 2018, the Chinese built out of nothing about a dozen islands in the South China Sea and militarized them with airfields and ports and air defense systems and everything else. Clearly, their long-term objective is to own the South China Sea and everything, control everything that goes through it. Mm -hmm. well, guess what sits in the middle of the South China Sea? Not in the middle, it's actually closer to China, is Taiwan, which one could argue is a democracy that much of the world would like to see stay a democracy. And China has as their number one objective, retaking. So the question is, when will they do that? Or will they do that? I believe they will try to do that at some point when they feel they're militarily capable and the political situation and economic situation in the world is to their favor mm. because they are going to get a lash back from the world just like Russia did with Ukraine if they do that now. So they are clearly watching what's going on with Russia in Ukraine and folding that into their calculus as to, okay, if we do this something similar with Taiwan, what will be the world's reaction? What will be the impact on us? They are much more dependent, I think, on the economic uh, support of the rest of the world than Russia is. And the, the, the severity of a lashback, an economic lashback would be tremendous. It's a very different military environment as well, because it's an island and they have to cross an ocean uh, mm -hmm. to get to the island. Then they have to get onto the island. And they have watched the reaction of the Ukrainians to the invasion of their land. And they clearly are thinking, what would be the reaction of the Taiwanese people if we do the same in Taiwan? Mm. So will they do it? I think eventually they plan to do it. When will they do it? When they are militarily capable. And I would argue that they are very close to that right now. And when they believe that they can deter the United States from coming to the assistance of Taiwan. Hmm. They can, like Russia has bullied its neighbors, they can bully the neighbors they have. I mean, they just signed a military pact with the Solomon Islands. And I expect that we're going to see the Solomon Islands we invaded and we, 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 we liberated from the Japanese in World War II. It's part of the campaign and is close to Australia, New Zealand, and that part of you know, South Pacific. And Solomon Islands has just signed a uh, economic pact with them, which includes possibility of military presence, Chinese military presence in the Solomon Islands. When I was working for the Marine Corps, I was working also not just building a base in Guam, but the plans to build a training area on an island called Tinian in the Commonwealth of Northern Marianas, which is just north of Guam by about 90 miles. It's a very small island. It's about eight miles long, about two miles wide. But we leased, the Department of Defense leased two-thirds of that land in the 1980s. The CNMI is actually U.S. 
territory now. It's not a territory, but we have a Commonwealth arrangement with them. They're all U.S. citizens. But the Chinese have gone in there in a very, very big way and built a casino in Saipan, which is the, the CNMI capital, that at one time had more money flowing through it than any casino on the planet. Really? Really. Interesting. And they are doing everything they can to coerce the people, the 50,000 people of the Commonwealth North, near the Mar Marianas, not to cooperate with the United States. Mm. Why? Because they don't want us to put training ranges on the island of Tinian yeah. or a Marine Corps base on the island of Guam. So the Chinese are very, very active in, in South Asia, in Oceania, and quite frankly, all over the world, in Africa and other places. Mm -hmm. They are building the old Silk Road. There is a new Silk Road being built. This time it's uh, train tracks and ocean liners and military bases and stuff like that. So yeah, their, their goal is to buy the 100th anniversary 2049 to be the world's leading power. Superpower. Superpower. Yeah. Interesting. And their military is, even as of right now, far more capable than Russia's. It is. And it's getting close to being more capable than us. Yeah. Uh, with they have hypersonic technology and we don't, <laughs> as do the Russians, by the way, because they right. just fired a missile into Ukraine, a hypersonic missile. So, mm -hmm. for your listeners, hypersonic technology is flying five times the speed of sound. And what's the advantage of that? It's the same bang when you get to your target. It just gets there five times over five, five to ten times as fast meaning that you can't get into the decision cycle and stop it before it arrives because it's just moving too fast. Well, and that's kind of like the new company that you are now a part of the startup president or with that technology that you're developing. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Shameful uh, promotion. Well. <laughs> About a year ago, I met these guys, two wonderful aerospace engineers who were determined to develop unmanned aerial vehicles that fly at hypersonic, supersonic, than hypersonic speed. And their ultimate goal is to develop a space plane that you can take off from any airport and fly to 100,000 feet and then launch a rocket from there. Hmm. And uh, they're very, very bright. They're very capable. One of them is a former Force Recon Marine. And I said, look, you haven't started opening doors yet with the Department of Defense. I think I might be able to help you with that in about three or four weeks into that effort. They asked me to be a more permanent member of the team. Well, you know, with you involved, hopefully we will advance that technology and hopefully we will surpass Russia and China as well. So I hope so. Yeah. So it's just fascinating just to see a lot of this. I mean, some of it is history repeating itself. Yeah, it is. You know? It's it's amazing. And what's going on with China in the South Pacific is very eerily like what was going on with Japan in the 30s. Yeah, and just... what's going on in Europe with Putin and Ukraine is eerily what was going on with Hitler and Germany in the 30s as well. So who knows? We could end up with World War III here. I know. It's crazy. I've always felt, and again, as a student of history, America needs to be strong because if not, that's when evil arises, in my opinion. Yeah. Sadly, we have short memories sometimes. And every time a war ends, we decide it's time to you know, yeah. downsize the military and, and I don't. turn our are we even shares. Are we even capable of handling two wars? That's a great question. On this scale, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. Not now. Now, in a very interesting, that's a great point. I'm a speaker on a group called OLLI, Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. 
Okay. And I have a presentation, which I do about China. And I did my presentation on China. And afterwards, one of the people in the audience came up to me and they showed me this book. It's called Freedom's Forge it's by Arthur Herman. Okay. And the subheading says, how American business produced victory in World War II. And he said, you know, this would be a fascinating presentation. And I said, okay. So I went home. I got on Amazon. I ordered the book. I read the book. If you go through it, you'll find yellow highlights all through it and so forth. And I developed another presentation, which now I've given twice to that same group about how we mobilized 18 months before Pearl Harbor, watching the winds of war develop, we mobilized in a way that really won World War II. And it makes me wonder, could we possibly do today what we did then? And I don't know. I don't know that we could. We don't have the manufacturing, at least, capabilities oh. like we did back then, right? Well, we didn't have it then either, but we no, turned we Ford... Ford factories into tank factories. You know, they didn't sell any, they didn't sell any uh, cars during World War II because they weren't making cars during World War II. They were making Jeeps and they were making tanks and they were making artillery. They were making airplanes. When Detroit became the biggest producer of war equipment in the history of the world. Nylons, people were turning in nylons so it could be turned into a parachute for, you know, airborne troops. You know, when, when you were talking about China before, it, it kind of like, what I was thinking in the back of my mind was, and, and I could be wrong, China doesn't really have bases all over the world, right? But what they do have, I mean, they've got their fingers into everything to the point where so many countries are dependent on them for a yeah. lot of for a lot of major resources. Yeah, they have. They they haven't there's a wonderful article called Debt Book Diplomacy. Mm. So D-E-B-T, debt debt book diplomacy okay. and it's it's all about the way china it's an article and i could actually send you the pdf but it basically tells how china has used its checkbook its tremendous resources trillions of dollars all over the world to buy influence and uh, and that's how they got the solomon islands that's how <laughs> they got the casino in saipan u.s territory that's how, how they got they bought they bought 99 years rights to running the port of Darwin, Australia, the year after we put 2,500 Marines rotating into Darwin, Australia. Well, guess who now runs the port there? The Chinese do. Long Beach in California, it's run by the Chinese. They really? tried to buy the Panama Canal from Panama. They're trying to buy all the mineral rights in right. all across Africa so that they can get a lock on rare minerals, which are critical to things like GPS and computers and mm -hmm. satellites and all kinds of stuff. I mean, there is a method to their madness. And when you've got a pretty deep checkbook, you can buy influence and they're doing it all over the world. So mm -hmm. without firing a shot yet. <laughs> right. And they're, and they are patient. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, General, I really appreciate you coming back on and um, sharing your insights and perspectives. I think it was fascinating. We are certainly living in interesting times for sure. Yeah, Rob, let me leave uh, a couple of thoughts with your listeners, uh, because some of them may watch uh, cable news and so forth. There are a couple of people that I have put an awful lot of credibility in who are talking heads. Mm -hmm. uh, David Petraeus, who most of your listeners know of, General David, 
Petraeus. You can take what he's saying about what's going on over there to the bank. I've known him for 30 years, and I think you can trust what he says about what's going on. Another one is a retired three-star named Mark Hurtling, Army three-star Hurtling, General Hurtling. I've known him for many years too. Uh, He is also very credible, and I would take what he says to the bank. But I would introduce your listeners to a third guy who they probably have never heard of. His name is Andy Milburn, Mm. and he is a retired Marine Corps colonel who is running a group called the Mozart Group in Ukraine. Hmm. He has a special forces background, and he was uh, when he retired, he became basically a reporter writing on defense issues, much of it special operations. When he saw what was happening in Ukraine, having spent a number of years training Ukrainian special forces, he went over there first to report on it. And then he thought, I can do something to help here. So he's not fighting, but he's helping to train and resource. And you can find him on LinkedIn, the Mozart group, and you'll get a firsthand look at what's going on. And I think you can believe what he says about what's going on there. Because he's on a day-to-day basis, talking to uh, Ukrainian leadership and military leaders and seeing uh, what's going on in the ground. Andy Mil- Colonel Andy Milburn, M-I-L-B-U-R-N. I appreciate you sharing that because to your point, there are a lot of talking heads out there and yeah, sometimes there it's difficult to kind of sift through, you know, what's credible, what's not. And, and so appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Those three guys, I think your listeners can believe. Once again, General, I want to thank you for coming back onto the jam session and sharing your perspective. It was very informative. And I also want to thank you on behalf of my listeners for your service to our great nation. And for those of you that may not be aware, General Weldon is a speaker. And if you have an event and would like to bring in General Weldon as a keynote speaker, we will leave his contact information in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend or colleague who you think might also get some value from it. I'm Rob Fonte, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Leadership Jam Session Podcast.